A couple of weeks ago, we started a new series uh, using this phrase that John uses in the Gospel of John, our fourth Gospel account in, in our Bibles, and John invites his readers to come and see. Come and see Jesus. Come and wrestle with his identity. Figure out, decide for yourself who you think Jesus is. In fact, he's, he's amazingly honest with the questions people were asking in his day. He was saying, even people that asked objectionable questions to say, ah, no, surely that can't be. And surely this can't be the Messiah because of this, that, or the other. And then he'll ask questions on the other side and say, yeah, but, but what about this? And what about that? Because John believes that when you wrestle with all of the evidence, when you wrestle with this story, you'll come to the conclusion that John came to, the undeniable conclusion that Jesus Christ is, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you'll have life in his name. And then we looked last week at the prologue, the first 18 verses of John and how John introduces Jesus to the world. He introduces him as God's word as God's word. And we talked about how to John that meant that Jesus was both with God in the beginning and he was God, that Jesus is God and that through Jesus, God is made known to us, that we can know God, the transcendent holy God that's way up there. We can know him because we can know that he is exactly like Jesus because Jesus is God. And then this morning, we're going to look at what another John says, so that John the evangelist, the one who's writing this book, he introduces us to a guy named John the Baptist. And John is kind of a weird dude. I mean, he wears weird clothes, and he eats weird food, and he hangs out in the wilderness, and he's baptizing people and telling them to repent. And, and when John sees Jesus, he calls him something strange. He calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, us as Christians and knowing the story and knowing where everything is going to go, that seems, yeah, okay, of course, he calls him the Lamb of God. And to us, that makes perfect sense. But if you really stop and think about it, you wonder, what exactly was John saying by that? Because as we follow John's story, John the Baptist's story, it seems like his expectation of who the Messiah was going to be was a lot like other Jews' expectation of who the Messiah was going to be at the time. And it certainly didn't include the Messiah dying on a Roman cross. So what exactly did John mean by that? In order to to kind of unpack that and look at that, I want us to see one thing. As we read through John, we will see, and here's a big long sentence, okay, so wrestle with with me for a second. As we read through John, we will see multiple streams of Jewish expectations converging on Jesus. I know you haven't had lunch yet, so that's, that's a lot to unpack. Multiple streams of Jewish expectations converging on Jesus. And what I mean by that is, I mean, they had a ton of prophecies, right? I mean, they had all of these prophets who had told them about what God was going to do with them and what they should be expecting and what was going to happen. And so you had some rabbis who would say, this is what's going to happen. Here's what we should expect. A, B, C, D, E, F. Here's what we should expect. And somebody else would come along and say, no, 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 that's not what we should expect. We should expect this, 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 this. And so there were different ideas on what we should expect, but they had all of these different streams of expectation. Let me illustrate it this way. They expected, one, a heavenly figure known in Daniel 7 as the Son of Man. So there was this idea that God would send the Son of Man, a heavenly figure. And then there was also an earthly figure, a Son of David, a Messiah, 
God's anointed king, the descendant of David, Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is said to be expecting a great prophet, a prophet like him. They expected Isaiah 53. They expected some suffering that would lead to blessings. So there would be suffering that would lead to blessings. They expected because of Isaiah and Ezekiel's prophecy that God would pour out his Holy Spirit on the people. So they were expecting the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And of course, all of the prophets talked about deliverance from exile and restoration. So they were expecting deliverance. And maybe some of these expectations had points of contact and things in common, but some of them seemed to be like, well, how is God going to do this if God is going to do that? And the great, profound, and awesome truth that the gospel writers are presenting is that all of these streams of expectation converge on one man, on Jesus, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the hopes and all of the expectations, and all of the prophecies, everything that they were expecting was coming true in Jesus the Christ. So that brings us to this idea. What did John mean by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? So did John mean that Jesus was going to be like, you remember in the story of Abraham and Isaac and how Abraham was going to sacrifice his son and how there was a ram caught in the thicket? Well, maybe maybe that's what Jesus or what John meant or maybe like the Passover lamb and brought about the deliverance of the people from Egypt or I think there's a a way to anchor this idea in Isaiah 53, and I think that's the best explanation. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, that in the context, God is, as he often told the people, to expect exaltation. I'm going to exalt you, and I'm going to make great things happen with you. Here's some bad things that are going to happen along the way, but eventually great things are going to happen with you and for you. Now, look at Isaiah 52 and verse 13, because that's where it kind of starts in verse 13. He says, behold my, what? Servant. Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, we often call this section of prophecy the suffering servant. And I think servant is the the key word here. Suffering is incredibly important to what Isaiah is talking about, but servant is incredibly important. What's, What's a servant? Servant is somebody who works for his master and who says, I'll... I'll do what you need me to do because you're my master and I'm your servant. I'll do what you need me to do, what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be who you want me to be. I'll fulfill what you want me to fulfill. I'll accomplish what you want me to accomplish. And so this servant that Isaiah is painting this picture is a faithful servant who does his master's will, who acts wisely, who goes and does what his master wants him to do and accomplishes what his master wants for him to accomplish. Now, when we read this section of story, this section of prophecy, who do we think of? Jesus, right? We read this and we think of Jesus. And good, we should think of Jesus. But when Jews read this, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, didn't read this as a prophecy about a single man, a single person who was coming. Some of them did, but most of them read it, and still do, by the way. Most modern Jews read this not as a single person, but as Israel, as a collective people who are the servant of God, saying to God, we will go where you want us to go and do what you want us to do and serve how you want us to serve and accomplish what you want us to accomplish. And I'll I'll show you why that's interpreted that way. 
Isaiah 41 and verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Isaiah 44 and verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Isaiah 49 and verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So many Jews weren't expecting a suffering servant. They were believing that they were called to be the suffering servant, to go where God wanted them to go and do what God wanted them to do and accomplish what God wanted them to accomplish, even if it meant their suffering, even if it meant that they had to go through horrible things. And as we read through this, we read that the servant is going to be glorified and exalted and lifted up, and and he's going to do what his master wants him to do. And what is it that God wants his servant to do? Go and bring the nations to me. Bring about the nation's redemption and reconciliation and their righteousness. Bring about their healing and their righteousness. And how? How is this going to be accomplished by the servant? Okay, God, we'll go where you want us to go and do what you want us to do and accomplish what you want us to accomplish because we're your servant. How is that going to be accomplished? Through your suffering. Willingly, let them treat you like dirt. Willingly, let them abuse you. Willingly, let them treat you horribly and oppress you. And through your faithfulness, you will bring about their healing and forgiveness and atonement and restoration and righteousness. Now, that's quite a calling, isn't it? And so that's, again, how many would read this prophecy. Now, look at Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. Because if you're reading the end of chapter 52, he says that that what's going to happen with his servant, in that the servant's going to be treated horribly, but then lifted up, that the nations will look and say, how has this happened? We thought, we thought, and again, if you read it as Israel, we thought you were, you were hated by God. We thought God must hate you because bad stuff always is happening to you. We thought God must really have it out for you. But then God saved you and lifted you up and exalted you and glorified you. How has this happened? And so they would read Isaiah 53 as what the the kings of the nations would say about this change that's happened to the Israelites. Verse 2, for he grew up, the servant, God's servant, grew up before him, before the Lord, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So in other words, the the nations would say about Israel, you you were nothing. You weren't anything special. We despised you. We looked down on you. You were were nothing consequential. Verse 4, surely though, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We thought, we thought you were suffering because of your sins, but it turns out it was our sin. It was because of our wickedness and our evil and our sin that you were going through what you were going through. You were suffering on our behalf and because of our wickedness. Now look at verse 7. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That this servant is going to be so faithful to God. So I love you, God, and I want to do whatever it is that you want me to do. What do you want me to do? Go get the people of the nations and bring them to me. I'll do it. What do I need to do? Suffer. And so this servant, if you, again, if you read it as Israel, their calling is be so committed to me that you're willing to go silently, without objection, without fighting it, just go like a lamb to the slaughter. Just let them lead you away and kill you. Through that, it's going to accomplish my will. And there were times where Israel felt exactly like that. In fact, that language is used, or Psalm 44, verse 11, the sons of Korah crying out to God, save us. And they said, you've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Same chapter, Psalm 44 and verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the calling is Israel. Be so committed to serving me that you're willing to be like a lamb led to the slaughter that you might accomplish my will of bringing all nations back to me. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul, that is his life, makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring though. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So through the suffering and the faithfulness of the servant of God in offering his life on behalf of others and bringing about their forgiveness, his days are going to be extended and his offspring are going to be many. So the suffering is going to be followed by, by blessing. You see, it was really easy to read that prophecy that way. If you were an Israelite living in the time of Jesus, or an Israelite living in any time, a Jew living at any time, and to think our suffering is going to lead to our blessing. But that's only half the picture. The calling isn't just to suffer. The calling is to be so faithful to God that you're willing to offer up your innocent life on behalf of others. You're willing to offer up yourself and say, treat me like dirt. Let all of your sin and your your vile and your wickedness be directed at me so that God can bring you back to himself. That's the calling. Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He share, divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So if you read this as Israel, that's the calling. Be my servant. Be willing to say, I'll go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do and accomplish what you want me to accomplish, even when it means laying down your life so that other nations can be brought to me and be forgiven. How well did that happen? How well did Israel live up to that calling and fulfill that calling? Were they, as a people, willing to suffer for the sins of others? Or willing to silently go like a lamb to the slaughter? Or make intercession for the transgressors? Or be a sacrificial lamb to restore the nations to God? No. In fact, 
as you read through all the gospel accounts, you come to the conclusion that, that Israel, sadly, heartbreakingly, had become just like the Gentile nations. They had become the world. And it wasn't that they were innocently letting others trample on them so that they could bring about the salvation of others. It was that they were participating in the oppression. They were participating in the violence. They were participating in the sin and the wickedness. But then there was Jesus who became as God's perfect representative. He became the perfect representative of Israel. He became Israel embodied, saying, God, I will go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do and accomplish what you want me to accomplish. I will lay down my life for others. I will let them treat me like dirt. I will go silently to the slaughter so that they may be healed and forgiven and restored and brought back to you. I will do it. I will put it on myself and thereby accomplishing the calling and the vocation, fulfilling what Israel was always called to do because they couldn't do it. And Jesus did what they couldn't do. I think about David and Goliath. We all know that story, right? Even the kiddos. We know David and Goliath. And we know there were two, two groups, two nations that were going up against each other. There was Israel and Philistia, right? Which one won, Israel or Philistia? Israel, right? But, but not all the Israelites went down into the valley, did they? They were afraid, and they stood there cowering until God's anointed, until God's anointed representative of Israel became the the perfect representative of Israel in that moment, and he said, I'll go, Lord. I'll go where you want me to go, and I'll do what you want me to do, and I'll accomplish what you want me to accomplish. And he won on their behalf, and that's what Jesus has done. He has become the embodiment of Israel, the perfect Israel, and said, God, I am your servant. And because I want to accomplish your will, and what's your will? To bring the nations to you, to bring about their healing and their forgiveness and their restoration and reconciliation with you, I will lay down my life. I will go where nobody else was willing to go. I will be what nobody else was willing to be. I will accomplish what no one else was able to accomplish. Now, let's read John 1, 29 through 34. John, the baptizer, as he's baptizing people and telling them to repent, and then he sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. I I didn't know he was the Messiah. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Do you see how the different expectations of Israel are converging on Jesus? The pouring out of the Spirit, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. 
the perfect embodiment of Israel, come to say, I will go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do and accomplish what you want me to accomplish. I will lay down my life so that they may be healed. And Israel become like the world in that some of them would look at Jesus whom they had pierced and say, we thought you were suffering because of God hating you, but it turns out it was for our sin that you were suffering. It was you who were faithful. It was you who were doing the will of God. And it would turn some of their hearts to him, and it's turned our hearts to him. His faithfulness, his suffering, has brought about our healing and our restoration our reconciliation with God. And the question this morning is, do you believe that? Do do you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Do you believe, more specifically, do you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin? So here's the moment of truth. Every every week, I want to have a moment of truth where we just wrestle with this. What would you do daily What would you do daily if you really believed Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin? What would you do daily if you really believed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including yours? Well, maybe maybe it's something you wouldn't do. Maybe you wouldn't beat yourself up so much. Maybe you wouldn't agonize over it or wonder, is my sin really gone? That if you're in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation, and he has taken away your sin. Praise God. And it would cause you probably to pray differently, wouldn't it? To pray with more adoration and gratitude, to say, God, you really have. You've sent your son who did what Israel couldn't do, who did what no man could do, who did what no nation would do, who stepped up and said, I will go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do and accomplish what you want me to accomplish. And his suffering has taken away my sin. You'd pray with all kinds of gratitude and adoration, wouldn't you? But you'd also serve with greater devotion, wouldn't you? Because the cross isn't just about consolation. Praise God it's about consolation consoling you, forgiving you. But it's not just, the cross isn't just consolation, it's calling. Because the cross calls us to pick up our own cross and to follow Jesus and to become a part of the body of Jesus who goes into the world to do the exact same calling that Jesus went out to accomplish. To be, to be collectively the servant of God who says, God, we will go where you want us to go. God, we will do what you want us to do. We will accomplish what you want us to accomplish. And what's that? The mission hasn't changed, has it? It's the same mission. Bring the nations to me. Bring them to me. I love the world and I want to take away their sin. That's our calling. That's what the cross calls us to do even if it means our suffering, even if it means our death, we join with Jesus to say, God wants the world to know him. God wants the world to be forgiven. And so we point the world to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sin of the world. And we embrace his calling and his mission, and we go into the world as his body, his hands and his feet and his mouth, and go into the world as the servant of God collectively, saying, we will go and do what you want us to do. Be who you want us to be and accomplish what you would have us to accomplish because 
you have accomplished our forgiveness and restoration. What would you do daily if you really believed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world? Because we're not just here to make each other feel better about ourselves. I hope you do feel better about yourselves looking in the cross. Because God loves you and he forgives you. But we're not here just to make each other feel better. We're here to call each other and encourage each other and spur one another on. And we can't accomplish what God wants us to accomplish unless we all participate. We need you with hearts filled with gratitude and adoration, with devotion just oozing, oozing from you, ready to do what God wants you to do, inspired by the service of Jesus, forgiven by his blood, ready to march out into the world. We need you. We can't accomplish what we need to accomplish unless we all participate. We are stronger with you than we are without you. We shine brighter in this community and in the world with you than we would without you. As we like to say, we are brighter together than we are apart, a people who've been joined together by our suffering servant and who are called to go and serve God in the world together as one body. What would you do today if you really believe Jesus is the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world? If you're not right with God, you'd run to him, wouldn't you? So maybe somebody here this morning needs to join with Jesus, be baptized into Jesus, or maybe you just need prayers of his people. Let us encourage and help each other, build each other up, struggle with each other as we go through this life. Whatever we can do for you, let us do that for you this morning. Come forward as we stand and sing the song.